I once heard a story about somebody who was watching her husband cook a lamb roast. She watched him go through the process of salting it and putting all the herbs on and everything. And then just before he put it into the dish that goes into the oven, he chopped off the last 10, 15 centimeters of the roast and put that chopped off piece of meat next to the main roast and then put the lid on and put it in the oven. And she said, I've been watching you cook lamb roast now for the last 15 years. And every time, just before you put it in the pot, you chop the end off. Why do you cut it off? And he said, I think it's something to do with the moisture content in the roast. But I'm not 100% sure, but that's how my mom did it. So now this lady's fascinated. So she gets on the phone to mom-in-law and she says, listen, I just watched Dave cook a lamb roast and chop the end off the lamb roast like he does every time before he puts it in the pot. And he says he does it because that's how you did it. So please, can you tell me why? Why do you chop that end off? And she says, I, I'm pretty sure it's to do with flavor penetration into the, the bulk of the lamb roast. But really, actually, I'm not sure because I just do it because that's how my mom did it. So now they're both fascinated. So mom-in-law puts the phone down, gets on the phone to her mom. And 10 minutes later, she phones back the daughter-in-law. And she said, I just spoke to my mom. And she said, when I was growing up, when I was a kid, the casserole dish, the pot that she had for cooking lamb roasts, was too short to fit the average leg of lamb. So she had to chop the end off to fit it into the pot. And I feel like this is sometimes how we practice veterinary science. We do stuff because once upon a time, based on what we knew at the time, we did something a certain way. We gave a drug or did a procedure because at that time, based on the information that we had, it made sense. But here's my rant. But here's my rant. Because what happens, what I see us doing, what I do sometimes, what I do, is sometimes we keep doing the same thing just because that's the way that we do it. Even when some new information has come to light, a new paper or research that has clearly shown that chopping the end of the lamb roast makes no difference to the final outcome of your roast. Or maybe we even learn that it can make the outcome worse, but yet we still do it. Which is why I chose to share this episode as the next one from our clinical podcasts. Like our previous clinical episode about AHDS or HGE and the nonsensical things that we still do to treat that condition when it comes to how we deal with potential nephrotoxins. We have a new pot, so we can stop chopping off the end of the roast. I made this episode from a compilation from some highlights of two episodes that we recorded in the last year on the topic of fluid therapy for nephrotoxin cases. We're talking NSAIDs and grapes and lilies and all that sort of stuff. One of the episodes was with Dr. Corin Boyd, who is a registered veterinary specialist in emergency medicine and critical care who works and teaches at Murdoch University in Perth, Western Australia. The other one was with Dr. Lionel Londonio, who is a clinical assistant professor of emergency and critical care and director of the hemodialysis unit at the University of Florida. His research interests include renal and non-renal applications of extracorporeal purification techniques, endothelial and glycocalyx pathophysiology in the critically ill and hospital-acquired acute kidney injury. And these two interviews complement each other beautifully. Dr. Corrin explains the logic, and Dr. Leo expands on that and follows up with a very specific, very practical example. 
These two episodes were made for the clinical podcast where I interview specialists and ask them all of the questions that I've accumulated over my 20 odd year career about their topic of expertise. All the stuff that I used to or still get stuck on. So updates on what's new or sometimes a revision of important things that I've long since forgotten. You're not going to find these podcasts if you search for them on your podcast player because access to them is through a paid subscription. Once you sign up for them at vvn.supercast.com, they will show up on your podcast player of choice. Now you might ask yourself, why would I want to become a paid subscriber when Hubert is sharing the stuff on here for free? Well, first, because on our subscriber-only podcasts, we have a vault, get it, of around 450 episodes in small animal medicine, surgery, and emergency and critical care, with two new episodes released each week. So the stuff that you hear on here is just a drop in the ocean. Second, subscribers get access to our beautifully crafted, very popular show notes so that you can refer back to the stuff that you've learned on the podcast when you see that case that makes you think, mm, I think I listened to a podcast on this, but I can't quite remember what they said. Our notes have grown into a searchable library for quick reference in its own right, and it's become my personal first-line reference when I'm on the clinic floor. This is because it's not just a wordy textbook chapter, it is the up-to-date key tips and takeaways from some of the smartest, most experienced people in the field. Third, Members get exclusive access to spaces on the VetVault network where you can ask questions and have discussions about the stuff that we're learning. And you get to help us guide what content gets produced next. And lastly, ads. These public versions of the podcast will usually have some sort of advertising attached to them, like this message, whereas the subscriber feed will never have any ads. So if you like what you hear on this episode and you do want to check out our full feed of clinical content, go and try it out for free for two weeks at VVN. That's VVN for VetVault Network. .supercast.com. Okay, Dr. Corrin, Dr. Leo, and why the kidneys are not toilets that you can flush. We're live with Dr. Corrin Boyd. Back on the last day of X of the Spring Symposium. Corrin, you did a great talk on Fluid therapy specifically, because we've this whole week's been about fluids. Yeah. Ooh, we've got fluid overload. <laughs> Sorry, bad fun. <laughs> this time oh, the yeah. <laughs> it's gonna be a bad session. And then specifically in the kidney patient, mm. which was it's insightful, really great. We actually did a podcast episode with Rob a while ago to introduce the idea of that. Because traditionally, certainly when I trained and in most of my career, I've got an acute kidney failure an animal. Or whack it with fluids because we've got to wash it out. Mm. We've got to wash out the azotemia and get rid of the nastiness. And then Rob said, and then we drown them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I guess it kind of, it's not as simple as that. I think we would all want it to be as simple as that because um, renal physiology is difficult and I make no claim to like thoroughly remember or understand all of my renal physiology, <laughs> but it certainly is really complex and we appreciate clinically, you know, we put an animal on two times, three times maintenance fluid, definitely more urine comes out of the animal. We mm -hmm. definitely can see that, mm -hmm. but we don't know that more that's helpful in any way. We don't know that more toxin comes out of the animal or we don't know that the toxin is not interacting with the kidney in the way that causes its toxicity less. And uh, it's really interesting. I went and did a literature search for look for evidence of that and nah, there's really not much evidence. So, so you're talking about the, the nephrotoxin that's not in kidney failure yet? 
not in kidney yeah. failure yet. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So you talk at the start, we talked about the animal that has kidney failure and then we want to be much more cautious with fluids Definitely, that than, we, yeah. than we used to be. The goal was never, it was not to flush them, out. Flush them yeah. out because they, because the kidneys aren't working. So, so yeah. it's much easier to fluid overload. And I, yeah. And I don't think, you know, tubular obstruction is often part of the mechanism of acute kidney injury, but it doesn't really make sense to try and flush the tubules by pushing heaps of fluid in. Cause I think people think you increase the pressure that's, exerted on those tubules if you put more fluid in but really the body regulates gfr right like we try and keep a, a normal gfr so as long as you can get gfr up to normal then trying to push more fluid in is not going to substantially increase gfr really that much that's not the main way that excessive fluid is shifted from the body when you put an animal on supraphysiologic fluid rates. So it's not going to clear those obstructed tubules. You just got to let the disease process take its course and let them clear themselves if they're going to. And if you make the kidney tissue more edematous, you're probably going to make it harder for it to clear. The bombshell, not a bombshell, but the part of your talk that was really fascinating the audience was actually in the questions. You're kind of done and somebody yeah. said, look, I don't know what about the animal that ingests an nephrotoxin and it's not sick yet and we put it put it on fluids and you said at the yeah. start of the talk so should we recap that yeah, yeah so that's a really interesting i'm really glad someone asked that question because it's something i like to talk about and um you know i sometimes do talks just on that topic because i think that there is this perception out there that inducing a diuresis whatever that means is beneficial to preventing nephrotoxicity in some sort of way now i don't have never actually seen an explanation i've read dozens probably hundreds of textbook chapters that recommend this and i've never seen an explanation of how that prevents nephrotoxicity so i've had to work out what i think people might be suggesting are the mechanisms that helps nephrotoxicity and then think to myself, do those make sense? And I don't think they do. To me, why that would be helpful is if it helps you get the nephrotoxin out of the body into the lawn, you know, being yeah. peed out quicker. Which is what I thought. That doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't pan out to me. For a start, just from simple observations, we do see that, you know, if we give an animal that's ingested a grape, twice maintenance fluids, that dog pees a lot, right? Like yeah. it does urinate a lot more, but we can already see from just looking at the urine grossly, looking at the urine specific gravity, all of these simple things we can do easily anytime, the urine is more dilute. So whilst there's more water there, is there more overall toxin being excreted in that more dilute urine? Okay. Yes. Okay. So you're increasing mm. the water component, mm. but not necessarily the Yes, yeah, the toxin. In that, in I think that. you would actually have to go and look with studies to try and work out does this increase the excretion if you're trying to make that argument. It may amaze you that I spent a long time searching the literature trying to find studies about whether fluid therapy increases the renal clearance of anything exogenously administered to people or animals. I found maybe like four or five studies ever. Really? That, that looked at substances being excreted in the urine, exogenous substances were, that were administered to patients or experimental animals being excreted in the urine. Found like one on like iodinated contrast stuff because people are 
concerned about that causing AKI. That's a whole nother controversy. Um, One about aminoglycoside antibiotics in kids where they were more actually looking at it from a perspective of if we put the kids on high fluids, maybe we have to give them more antibiotics because they'll pee it out faster. And all of these did show difference between giving lots of fluid and giving not much fluid, but tiny difference, like maybe 5% faster excretion with the fluids. So for a start, the evidence isn't there. Then I went, all right, well, let's go and actually work out what. This is the interesting question. I think if you asked most of us, most vets, why does putting your patient on twice maintenance fluids make them pee more? Do you have a Good, simple answer to that. <laughs> you can't trick me on a Sunday morning, Karan. I just feel like, well, there's more fluid going in, so more fluid needs to come out. More fluid has to come out, yeah. But how does the body know that and how does it do it? It's a complex neurohormonal system, right? And all these things like natriuretic peptides, the RAS, all this sort of stuff gets involved. And it has effects on the kidney in all sorts of places, not just GFR, which is the thing that people seem to focus on. They're like, we have a higher GFR but it's probably mainly not that. It's stuff happening within the tubules themselves. A lot of that modification of water content of the urine happens right in the very distal tubule. So that's ADH, ADH, aquaporins. Yeah, all that sort of stuff. And then natriuretic peptides, which are these substances that only come along when you have are hypervolemic and tell you natriuretic means sodium peeing. So you pee out sodium and water follows it. Yeah. They only kind of come along when you're hypervolemic and they have lots of effects. Some of them really bad, like shedding your glycocalyx. A lot of what they do to the urine is in the distal tubule. So it's actually more urine comes out, but it's only because it's being modified right at the very end of the kidney. So we know physiologically all of these mechanisms happen. No one's looked clinically and said in our patients, we actually put on twice maintenance fluid. What is actually physiologically happening in their kidneys? (laughs) I do not, I have not found any studies where anyone's actually looked at that question. So I don't think it may necessarily, we can think it's likely to make you pee out the toxin much faster at all. The other thing that people say is, well, okay, but if there's more fluid flowing through the kidney tubules, then it'll stop the toxin from sort of, you know, getting stuck in the kidney tubules and binding to things and stuff. But then that same argument applies, right? Like that would require knowing that there was higher fluid flow right up in the proximal kidney tubules, which is where most of the damage for most toxins is relevant. Although every nephrotoxin is completely different in how it causes kidney toxicity. So it seems strange to suggest that there could be one treatment that would work for NSAIDs. NSAIDs, which I've just said of you know, a while ago, NSAIDs don't even affect the tubules directly. So, they so work they're on, not sitting in the tubules. They're not sitting in the tubules, whereas something, something like grapes, we don't completely understand what they're doing. Yeah. And then you something like ethylene glycol, it's um, crystals precipitating out throughout the tubules. So there are all these different mechanisms, but I just don't think either the evident clinical evidence or the physiologic argument for why it would be helpful is sound. Just to stack up and then chucking an animal on, on fluids for two days on twice made is not, again, it's, it's a lot of the core of this whole week is it, yeah. it's not just that. No, I guess my concern is 
some of those patients will be fine, whatever you do with them, right? Yep. They just didn't get enough oxygen. They've got good healthy or kidneys you, so they can or sort they it got out. healthy kidneys that could take the insult or you induced emesis for the nephrotoxin quickly enough that they never absorbed any or they didn't actually eat as much as the owner thought and they were never at risk or whatever. Yep. A lot of those animals will be fine, but some of them will develop AKI, right? Like we've all seen these big NZ ingestions that yep. do you get an AKI. Some of us may have seen, you know, some grape cases that actually do have an AKI. We might see cats with lilies that yep. do get an AKI. And my concern is if you're putting them on twice maintenance fluid to try and prevent that AKI, and then at some point during that two-day period, they actually develop AKI uh-huh. and they become, because of their AKI, their urine output drops, they get an oliguric or an aneuric form of AKI. Uh-huh. It's really easy to really quickly fluid overload them with that twice maintenance fluids you're giving before you can clinically recognize, oh, now they've actually got an AKI and they've stopped making urine. Like you don't have a little camera sitting there in the ureter measuring urine coming into the bladder, right? You may or may not have a urinary catheter in place, but in my experience, most of these animals where you're trying to prevent it, you don't have a urinary catheter yet. You'll only put one in if they actually develop AKI later. So you're watching them pee, you're watching them clinically, and often before they actually get clinical evidence of being unwell, they may have had AKI for a little while and you may have already fluid overloaded them. And one of the other things we talked about a bit in the talk here was that fluid overload is really bad for the kidneys. So you may already make yourself have to start from behind with these animals because you fluid overloaded them before you've even kind of really got started treating their AKI. Wow. That's a shift. That last bit about you got fluid rushing in the top end and the yep. healthy kidney and then the kidney goes, oh, I'm not that healthy. I'm going to slow down. Basically close the plug. Yep. And then and the you fluid start keeps coming in. Edema and, everywhere. And then you start getting, because you, your mechanism, why the fluid overload is worse for the kidneys is that, that I understand that because it's a soft tissue organ, but in a, in a capsule. In a capsule. So you shove a bunch of fluid in the interstitial space in the kidney and it squashes squashes the kidney and squashes all of the tubular outflows of the kidney. So now blood can't perfuse it and urine can't get out of it because basically it's like a tight, scrunched, closed thing. Yeah. Oh, wow. I will put one little caveat on this, though, that I think is really important is that dehydration and hypovolemia are definitely still bad for the kidney as well. So I'm not saying never put an animal that's had a nephrotoxin ever on any sort of fluids ever. That's definitely not what I'm saying. A lot of these animals also, especially if it's something like an NSAID, have GI signs. And if they weren't treated with fluid therapy, they would be at risk of becoming dehydrated and hypovolemic because of that, those GI signs and stuff like that. So those animals... I definitely think need IV fluid therapy. You just don't use some magical extra mindset for their fluid therapy compared to what you would normally do. You just do what you would normally do. You know, if they're in shock, you give them a fluid bolus based on the severity of their shock. If they're dehydrated, you carefully replace your sort of estimated deficit and recheck them frequently. And if they're not eating and drinking, they can have maintenance. And you watch them closely and make sure that they're not getting fluid overloaded with that plan or becoming more dehydrated with that plan. So sometimes these animals still need fluids. They just don't need fluids to flush the kidneys, which are, as Dr. Melissa Claus says, the kidneys are not tiny toilets. You can't flush them. 
gold. So making that practical for everyday practice. So the grape dog, the my cat licked the lily, mm. but it's still fine. What do we do with those? Do you say, okay, well, go home, come yeah. back if it gets sick? Yeah, it depends on the owner and how worried I am the animal is going to get sick. Some of them you're like, all right, you've definitely had a big dose of what is definitely a nephrotoxin. I think you're really likely to get sick. I usually sort of recommend admitting those for observation. And then usually you'll find those animals already probably aren't eating and drinking when they're in the hospital. So if they're not, then I probably put them on maintenance fluids until I'm happy that they're going to eat. Yep. If they're like the dog that's like a bouncy, happy dog that ate a grape, came in, maybe got some amesis and vomited up the grape, is bouncy. The owners are like, yeah, we can watch it. We'll know if he's sick. Then those ones I say, take him home then. Please just bring him straight back. And I give them this whole list of things, drinking more, drinking less, vomiting, diarrhea, peeing more, peeing less, urine's changed in colour. All of these warning signs, give them a list and say, come straight back if there's those things. Yeah. You know, if they're really worried, like people are like, I really want to make sure it's okay, you can kind of take some blood for a baseline renal panel. So you can then, you know, if they are not looking quite right in two or three days, you've got a baseline to compare against. Yeah. I like that approach. The thing that I'm wondering about, let's say we've got the lily cat. Mm -hmm. It's given a significant amount of lily, but it's young kids and it's still fine. But that's a significant nephrotoxin. So we really are worried about that. So even then admitting that guy to watch it, I go, well, I'm going to admit you. And then I know that you're suddenly not going to eat and drink. Yeah. Probably so, because so you're that a cat. cat, I would, you know, if I admitted it and it was not eating and drinking, I'd probably use maintenance yes, fluids okay. to try and maintain hydration. But nothing there. to do with flushing the kidneys. Nothing it's to do just, with flushing the kidneys. I'm just giving you what you're not just, drinking. I, w I don't want you to become dehydrated and hypovolemic. So I'm yeah. going to try and keep fluid balance. Theoretically, if the owners could watch it, you could still send it home or maybe cat, cats are a bit harder because you know the lily cats i do if it's a true lily i do get really worried about them and cats can be really subtle in their clinical signs so a lot of times those you know it's a case-by-case -case decision to discussion to have with the owners but i feel like observing them in hospital and maybe doing some baseline bloods and then bloods 24 to 48 hours later to see if creatinine's going up is um, really useful. I find also, just anecdotally, I don't believe that this is evidence-based, but it, it might be, and I just don't know about it. But anecdotally, I think that those renal ultrasound changes, the classic AKI renal ultrasound changes that you sometimes get, you know, a bright rim around the kidneys, a little bit of free fluid around the kidneys. Mm. I feel like those changes that are, sometimes we see them, sometimes we don't in AKI cases, but I feel like in my experience, they're really common in, in lily cats. Okay. So doing point of care ultrasound of the kidneys the next day as well can often be really helpful to me in those cats because I already, often already by the next day, if they're going to get an AKI, you see you know, that fluid around the kidney, that bright rim around the cortex, and you're like, okay, these kidneys look bad. Now this cat's, even if the creatinine hasn't gone up yet, it's going to. Yeah. So start treating it like a kidney cat. Yeah. But we can send the freaking grape dogs home. That's gold. Corin, thank you so, so much for that. No worries. Hey, just before Dr. Leo tells us about why putting that puppy who's just eaten non-steroidals onto twice maintenance fluids for three days doesn't make any sense and what you should do instead, I just wanted to give you a quick update on our specialist support space. Now, if you haven't heard of it, we created an online space that you can use on your phone or on your laptop to get access to a list of specialists to help you with your tricky cases. 
It's a very nifty little space where you can share photos or files or even chat live if the case requires it. So these are for the cases where you are just a little bit stuck. You can't refer it for some reason or you don't need to refer it, but you just need to ask somebody a little bit smarter than yourself. What's happening here? What does that blood mean? Can you look at this x-ray for me? Can you help me with a decision on this? And our specialists are growing. Well, actually, let's say the list of specialists is growing. I'm pretty sure that all the specialists we have on the space are fully grown adults. We started with a couple of medicine specialists and an emergency and critical care specialist. But in the last couple of months, we have added a dermatologist and recently an oncologist, as well as a diabetes expert. So somebody specifically for those tricky diabetes cases, including information around the new basal insulin treatment protocols. It is a paid space, but we've tried to keep it as affordable as possible for about $15 a month, and we are working on practice subscriptions. If you want to check it out, I've put a link in the show description wherever you're listening to this. And if you want to find out about practice subscriptions, shoot us an email at info at Okay, back to Dr. Leo and non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. So, next topic is the, oh, my dog's eating a whole box of my ibuprofen, well, name your anti-inflammatory. Yeah. I don't know what's popular in the U.S. For us, it's often ibuprofen. Ibuprofen is the most common one there. So, the traditional approach, it's all kind of forever as well. Let's get to you in hospital. Obviously, if there's decontamination options, we won't go into that. But the fluid part of that is to go, we've got to get you on fluids for 48 hours because we want to make sure that we perfuse your kidneys and flush out the NSAID, right? Yeah. Does that make sense? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Again, going back to the pharmacokinetics of NSAIDs, if you look at NSAIDs, they're 95% bound to albumin. If you're doing fluid diuresis... Not flushing albumin through the glomerulus. No, unless you know how a healthy glomerulus, <laughs> Yeah. right? Because yeah. albumin weighs 69,000. Yeah, it's staying well and truly. It's in a the big pupil, molecule. Yeah. The glomerulus lets pass some very small molecular weight proteins, but they're reabsorbed by the proximal tubular epithelium. But the glomerulus doesn't let albumin pass unless there is an existing glomerulopathy. So... What's the reason to do fluid diuresis on a dog with NSAID? There is none. Makes no sense. So how does how do we clear NSAIDs? Uh, is it hepatically cleared? Well, there is both ways. Some of them are hepatic. Some of them are renal. Okay. Uh, so now, the, so the un, little bit of unbound percentage will get peed out, but but right. it's only like a, did you say ninety five percent? Ninety five percent or more. Five percent of circulating NSAIDs. And, and what's the what's the half life? I know it varies drug to drug, but most of them are between eight and twelve hours. Okay. So that's why we make that recommendation because, again, when you give recommendations for fluid therapy to incretion through the kidneys, you want to do three times the half-life of a drug to achieve at least a 60 to 65% reduction of the drug from circulation. Mm -hmm. So three times the half-life. That puts us at 36 hours or so uh, of hospitalization with most NSAIDs. Yeah. If we were going to do fluid therapy for NSAIDs. Now, how about naproxen? I don't Do know naproxen. You don't know naproxen. No, I've heard of it, but I, I, not common for us. So tell so me about it. Naproxen is a very common human NSAID, okay? And we see a lot of exposure to the NSAID here in the U.S. Yeah. Is naproxen the, the active ingredient? That's yep. okay. Yeah. Yep. And uh, the half-life of naproxen is 72 to hours. So technically, if you have a patient that ingests naproxen, you have to put that patient on fluids for nine days. And it's also albumin-bound, like all that. Yeah. This might... Yeah, let me think about this before I ask it. So, the, how do the NSAIDs damage the kidneys? It is to do with blood supply, right? Right. So, so it's not it's not directly nephrotoxic by the chemicals sitting in the tubule, damaging tubular cells. Because no. the other theory with why do we put animals on fluids is because you don't want the toxin to to linger 
in the tubules. You want once it's through the glomerulus, you got to get the hell out of there. But it's no, not. No, and okay. then it's not directly nephrotoxic. Again, the damage to the kidneys is mediated by prostaglandin inhibition, and yeah. when there is no prostaglandin, there is no afferent arterial vasodilation. Yeah. Right? So technically you have a vasoconstriction, the hypoxic damage to the kidney. The kidney's sad because it's not getting enough oxygen, basically. Right, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. So yeah, this dogmatic approach of fluid therapy for the NSAID dog doesn't really make a lot of pharmacological sense. And I, that's a very strong consensus in the IRIS society amongst nephrologists is there, you know? I'm part of the IRIS AKI guidelines and we discussed that in patients with a NSAID toxicity, fluid therapy, there is really no evidence to prove that it makes a difference. I feel like you should say the sentence, you don't need to put your NSAID toxicities on fluids for two, three days, and then you should drop that microphone and walk away. <laughs> like a well, mic drop moment. You, know, you, you look at it for patients because technically, you know, IV fluids could have a detrimental effect too. Yeah. Right? Especially if you're not monitoring body weight, you can overload them. Even if they have subclinical AKI with no isotemia, they can retain water. So they have that. And then one point that was very well taken in the audience was workload for our ICU nurses. Oh yeah. And the problem is they almost always puppies and they're almost always really annoying. Exactly. So they sit there for two, three days, barking their heads off and, and chewing their drip lines. <laughs> exactly. You know, we talk about how short staffed sometimes the hospitals are, how difficult it is to get ICU nurses. And then we're overloading them with work that truly is no evidence to support the use of fluids on NSAID toxicity. Now, yes. I think that we also have to categorize our patients too, because you have the dog that just ate the NSAID, swagging his tail, right? You make him vomit, vomits good amount. You give him some charcoal or some cholesteramine, maybe some IV lipids, okay? And then you send them home. But also you have the dog that ate 2,000 mix per kg of ibuprofen and comes in comatose. So that animal has to stay. So, so you know, I'm not saying that, no, is it Everything. completely contraindicated because at the end, those animals, if they're really at risk of AKI with a high dose, you cannot decontaminate because they're neurological. Then those animals will benefit from staying and looking at other options for decontamination, such as IV lipids, therapeutic plasma exchange, that's become very popular. Okay, so for the GP clinician faced with the healthy dog that's just eaten so yeah. it's decontamination really and and then home and then keep a close eye on him and if he becomes unwell let's, well, let's come back in it will be warranted to monitor creatinine at least yeah yeah so 24 48 yeah. hours yeah you can send them home with some cholesteramine because we know that was a good point from the audience today was you know you have patients that you may send them home with activated charcoal but they can become hypernatural yeah yeah so you can give them a single dose of charcoal and send them home with cholesteramine which is a brand new one. I, I did a podcast about a month ago about cholesteramine, and that was about the first time I've ever heard of it. Yeah. Uh, and so in theory, it should work for the NSAIDs. We don't have data yeah. that supports it or? Well, you know, if you look at the enterohepatic, so the toxins that have enterohepatic recirculation, yeah. those yeah. toxins are bound to cholesteramine in bond. Yeah. So, so it should work. It should work. Right. That's really useful. Awesome. Thank you so much for sitting down. I appreciate it. Thanks for the really invite. Super insightful. Before you disappear, I wanted to tell you about our new weekly newsletter. I speak to so many interesting people and learn so many new things while making the podcasts. 
So I thought I'd create a little summary each week of the stuff that stood out for me. We call it the VetVault 321 and it consists of, firstly, three clinical pearls. These are three things that I've taken away from the clinical podcast episodes. My light bulb moments, the penny dropping, any new facts, and the stuff that we need to know to make all the other pieces fit. Then, two other things. These could be quotes, links, movies, books, a podcast highlight, anything that I've come across outside of clinical vetting that I think you might find interesting. And then, one thing to think about. I'll share something that I'm pondering, usually based on something that I've read or heard, but sometimes it'll be just my own musings or rants. The goal of this format is that you can spend just two to three minutes on the clinical stuff and move right along if that's all that you're after. But if you're looking for content that is more nourishing than cat videos or doom scrolling, then our two other things should send you in the right direction. And then something extra for when you feel like a slightly longer read. If you'd like to get these in your inbox each week, then subscribe by following the newsletter link in the show description wherever you're listening to this. It's free, I think it's useful, it's fun, and it's easy to unsubscribe if it's not for you. Okay, we'll see you next time.